Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I am the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Keras Life Sciences. I appreciate you tuning in for the Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. Hopefully, you've had some chance to actually listen to prior podcasts to this one. We cover a variety of clinically important topics, focusing on keeping you updated on what's going on across various tumor types, clinical advances in oncology, and how does precision oncology fits into all of these clinical advances that are occurring. And I couldn't be happier than having Dr. Jeff Gibney from Georgetown University as my expert guest on today's podcast, because I want to know, and I'm sure you do as well, a lot of things about melanoma. Look, there are so many things that have changed about that way melanoma is treated. In fact, I recall when I was a resident in training, the two most common questions was, well, do we give adjuvant interferon or do we not give adjuvant interferon? Which patient is eligible for high-dose interleukin-2? Which patient cannot receive high-dose interleukin-2? Things have changed and they've actually improved significantly since then. And right now we know which patients we should treat with drug A versus drug B. Patients who have metastatic disease, that's actually stage four disease that has spread elsewhere, they have significantly better prognosis with all of these newer therapies. And I think all of these newer therapies stem from the fact that we are able to know more about the tumor, about the actual disease than before through sequencing, through really understanding the target that we are trying to aim against with our novel therapies. And no one is better than Dr. Jeff Gibney to simplify a complicated topic to all of us. So I'm really very happy to have him on today's podcast. Before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Jeff Gibney on August 28, 2020, I would like to plug the show and ask you to find us on all podcast outlets. You can find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, everywhere. Write us a brief review. Give us the number of stars you believe we deserve on this podcast. And if you have any questions or comments, please send me an email or a note to cnabhan at karisls.com. Without further ado, Dr. Jeff Gibney on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure of mine to host Dr. Jeff Gibney with me on today's podcast. Jeff is charged with a very easy task. He's going to simplify the world of melanoma for us and for all of you listening to this podcast. Jeff, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. For folks who are listening and who don't know of you and, and what you do, maybe a little bit about you, where you practice, what's your research interest, and uh, what do you do day in and day out uh, at Georgetown? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. And a little bit of a background about myself. I'm a medical oncologist with a focus in melanoma as well as other skin tumors, particularly in relation to immunotherapies. And I've been involved in immunotherapy work really since the beginning of anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1 development, previously faculty at Moffitt Cancer Center and currently at Georgetown University, where I'm co-director of the melanoma program. I also am a member of the phase one program, as well as medical director of the adult outpatient infusion center. For my research, 
Uh, I've been involved in uh, novel therapeutics, novel uh, immunotherapy agents. I've also been involved in biomarker strategies. One of the uh, newer efforts that I've been involved in is looking at uh, biomarkers for safe discontinuation of anti-PD-1 therapy in patients who are responding, particularly how long should the duration be and, and when do we feel comfortable stopping the therapy. And uh, fortunately, this past week, I, I protocol that I'm working on with the uh, ECOG-ACRIN group was just open. Uh, EA6192 is an activated protocol looking at uh, duration of anti-PD-1 therapy in melanoma. That's, that's great. You know, I always like to ask this question, Jeff, like what got you interested in that? I mean, is it like a, a mentor? Like, you know, I mean, when you went into fellowship, was it always you wanted to be specialized in this or what got you interested in it? Now it's, it's always interesting how you end up in one place, but maybe started in another for fellowship. And what I tell the fellows is a lot of times it's, it's about the science and the mentorship. It's not necessarily the, the disease type that you're focused on. And uh, when I was a fellow at Yale University, uh, I was working uh, with uh, Dr. Kelly, who's a prostate oncologist, yep. and originally thought I was going to do GU and spent a lot of time working with him and uh, ultimately shifted to working with the renal cell and, and melanoma group at Yale during my uh, second half of the fellowship, uh, working with Harriet Kluver and Mario Snull and uh, ended up working in the laboratory lab bench, uh, looking at signaling and RCC, uh, as well as in melanoma work. And when I was applying for jobs, there were plenty of jobs in melanoma. Immunotherapy was just taking off, a very exciting field to be involved in, and it worked very well for me. And so far, I've been very happy with my choice. That's great. It's a, it's a pretty complex topic to simplify, you know, like in a 15, 20 minutes, but we'll do our best. And at the risk of giving listeners my age, I'll tell you that the biggest advance when I was in training and the biggest controversy, whether melanoma patients should get adjuvant interferon or not, mm. that was like, you know, do you actually do it? Do you not? And there was a lot of controversy on this in terms of the endpoints of survival and disease-free survival and so forth. Obviously, things have changed drastically since then. So let's start by talking about metastatic disease. Mm -hmm. If you were to simplify to listeners how things have changed over the past, I would say five, six years, and how you approach a patient with metastatic melanoma. How would you summarize your approach to the treatment of this disease now in the metastatic setting? So I think we would wanna backtrack to 2011, and that's where we had the first approval of anti-CTLA CTLA for therapy, where that really changed the way we look at things. Historically, the survival for a stage four patient was in the ballpark of about 10% long-term survival. And then as we had the new immune checkpoint therapies coming into development, uh, both approved and in clinical trials, we clearly saw this number greatly improving. So when I see a, a patient now with stage four melanoma, and we do talk about how they may not be curable, at least by conventional means with surgery, um, but we now have the ability to put patients in durable control or remission and we do think that some of those patients probably are cured, even though it's very hard to truly show that. And, and that number isn't 10% anymore. That number is probably somewhere in the 40 to 50% chance uh, or probability. So when I see a patient uh, with stage four diagnosis, it's a new diagnosis, obviously a very scary time for them. They may have read some of the historic data that looked very uh, dismal. And 
fortunately now we're able to give them some hope that there's still, there's a very good probability that if we use some of the new immunotherapy, uh, that they could have a very good outcome and the melanoma would be put in remission and they go on with their lives. And when you decide on therapy though, I mean, there's obviously a lot of choices, but uh, I think the biggest, uh, and I'll back up, I mean, I'm not a melanoma expert, but I, I always see the melanoma experts talking about monotherapies and sequential treatment versus combination therapy. And then I also see a lot of discussion of target therapy versus immunotherapy. So there's so much going on. How do we approach that in a, in a systematic way? So uh, we've been de debating this for five years or more, and I don't think we have the answer yet. So it still is debated, <laughs> which keeps us busy, right? And it's always interesting to have these academic conversations. But, you know, I, I think to break it down simply is that in melanoma currently today, we want to know if there's a BRAF mutation, a, a somatic mutation, it's an acquired mutation in the tumor only. Uh, and if it's present, it's an oncodriver, it drives the tumor. And uh, if it's present, we have BRAF therapy. These are pills that block the BRAF pathway and can be very effective. If there is no BRAF mutation, then the BRAF therapy wouldn't, would not be offered. It would not be helpful. In fact, it could be detrimental. Uh, in either case, if the BRAF mutation is present or not, those patients have the option of immunotherapy. The immunotherapy option, when we look at it, uh, the starting place is usually anti-PD-1 therapy, uh, drugs such as nivolumab or pembrolizumab. And then the question is, do we give it by itself or do we give it in combination? Uh, the combination would be with an anti-CTLA-4 agent called ipilimumab. So the common regimen that we're talking about is nivolumab plus ipilimumab. And today, even with more data, we still debate this, whether long-term survival is better if you start off with the combination, for example, nivolumab plus ipilimumab, versus an anti-PD-1 monotherapy strategy. Uh, what we do know from the Checkmate 067 study is that the response rates technically are higher uh, with combination and the five-year overall survival is higher uh, than uh, the patients who are in the monotherapy arm. So when you see a patient and uh, you know, they're healthy individuals otherwise, they are willing to tolerate some increased risk of side effects with the combination, and they want the best chance for long-term survival, the Nevoipi technically has the highest survival rate to date. So when I see a patient, I normally am discussing that, uh, but there are some patients that would prefer or benefit from starting from anti-PD-1 monotherapy and perhaps use salvage combination if they don't uh, respond. The, uh, the gain, though, with combination, you have to realize, may be fairly modest because we do see a response rate of 45% with anti-PD-1 monotherapy compared to 55 to 60% uh, with the combination. And if you respond to either one, about two thirds of them are durable. So the patients that get PD-1 monotherapy may do quite well and they might do as well as patients in some cases that get the combination. Uh, so we do debate back and forth. And one of the things that we have not uh, really clarified is if you start with anti-PD-1 therapy and progress, can you effectively salvage every patient with combination? And I think a lot of us are worried that you can't. Uh, you certainly can for some of them, and that your best shot may be the first time. So when I, I see patients, most of the time we are talking about starting with combination immunotherapy to make sure we get it right the first time, even though there might be 
uh, a higher risk of immune side effects with it. Would be interesting if you find like a phenotype or some predictive markers that tell you that this person would benefit from the monotherapy versus the uh, combination therapy. Oh, we would love that. Uh, you know, there are some markers that enrich currently. Uh, you know, we, we all talk about the PDL1 marker on tumors and, and uh, infiltrating immune cells in the tumor microenvironment. Uh, in melanoma, it's controversial because the PDL1 low tumors still have good response rates with anti-PD1 therapy. Uh, but we'll, what we have seen is a PDL1 high tumor have uh, even greater responses to PD1 monotherapy. So that response rate of 45% for all comers actually goes up higher if you're PDL1 high, you're looking at that population. But the catch to that is the response rate goes up even higher if you use combinations. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't mean that you won't get more benefit with combination if you're PDL1 high. You certainly, certainly can. You know, you mentioned something interesting about the BRAF mutation. Um, so, if you have a BRAF mutation, I presume there's data to support that in the BRAF mutated tumors, it's better to use a BRAF target therapy as opposed to immunotherapy. Well, we we know that it's necessary to have the BRAF mutation to use the BRAF targeted therapy. In fact, there could be a, a negative paradoxical effect where cells are encouraged to grow faster if the BRAF mutation is not present. But what we don't know is if you have BRAF mutant melanoma, should you start with immunotherapy or if you should start with BRAF targeted therapy? One of my colleagues, Mike Atkins, is overseeing a large cooperative group trial called EA6134 where patients with BRAF mutant melanoma treatment naive are randomized to either start with BRAF targeted therapy or the immunotherapy strategy. But uh, we, we haven't seen the data yet. I think all of us have slight biases and uh, are probably more so towards starting with immunotherapy, but this study is gonna help really resolve that and unify us hopefully around one of the two regimens for the starting place. And how do oncologists check for the BRAF mutation? Like what, I mean, is like a, what type of test needs to be done to detect if the mutation exists or not? This tends to be quite heterogeneous, depending on which academic center you um, are looking at, that there are a number of assays that individual centers can use. And in fact, you can go back to Sanger sequencing, the original sequencing technique and use that. There are two commonly used FDA approved uh, sequencing tests one that was paired with the combination of vemurafenib and cobimetinib, and a, a second one that was paired with dabrafenib-trimetinib. And uh, some centers use that. In fact, we, we do use one of them mainly for historical reasons. It's been in place for a while, and also for potentially insurance reasons to make sure we get the coverage. Uh, but a lot of centers are using more advanced techniques where it's uh, an actual sequencing approach uh, with next-gen sequencing. And not only do you find out if the tumor harbors a BRAF B600E or K mutation, but you'll find out if it has one of the more rare mutations. So for example, at our center, when we uh, find that they are BRAF wild type, we know in, in essence that that tumor actually could still harbor a rare BRAF mutation. So when I do the, the FDA approved assay that we have at our center, I still will uh, send off for next generation sequencing for the rare BRAF mutations to make sure we're not missing something if we need more therapeutic strategy options for the patient. Yeah, that's very helpful. I mean, sequencing is becoming mainstream, obviously in metastatic disease, it's clearly important to decide on this. How about in early stage disease where uh, you have a patient who undergoes surgery 
Well, before we go to, to early stage disease, so there is a subset of patients with metastatic disease that you could say could be cured completely or just, I mean, do we have that long enough now to say? <laughs> well, we do know stage four patients can be cured because we have data 20 years ago and, and back. Uh, so if you look at the interleukin-2, the IL-2 data, there is a tail to the end of the curve 10 years and plus out. Fast forwarding to more conventional drugs that we use, uh, for example, ipilimumab, uh, stage four patients, there's a tail to the curve at about 10% uh, to 20%. So in that range, we know that there are long-term survivors. For the anti-PD-1 therapies, the trials are pretty new. So the, most of the follow-up that we have stops at five years. We hopefully will have 10-year follow-up. So when we say there are long-term survivors with anti-PD-1 drug, most of the data that we quote really stops at five years. So we don't quite know what happens at year 10 or year 20 in someone who has a, a great response to the anti-PD-1 therapy. But we, we anticipate that those patients will be long-term survivors. And currently, we don't have a way to say if the patients are free of all disease, if it's lying dormant, or if there's some other in between. Uh, so we, we try to explain to patients that we don't know if you're truly cured. We know you're in remission when we don't see any active disease, is how we phrase it. It may surface again, but it may not. Uh, either way, we see durable control, and that's what we're hoping to achieve with most of the patients. And I think for all practical purposes, the highest chances of cure are usually when patients are diagnosed with early stage disease and they're mm -hmm. eligible for surgery, followed by either doing nothing or doing some kind of adjuvant treatment. So what, what are you now doing in your practice for adjuvant therapy, which is treatment after resection of a primary tumor? This is a, a really hot topic evolving field. And a lot of the drug therapies that we've been using in the stage four setting have moved into the resected stage three setting. Uh, so patients with uh, regional disease, when the cancer has spread to lymph nodes and they've undergone resection of the disease with uh, the primary site removed as well as the lymph nodes, or at least the central lymph node biopsy performed, uh, the majority of those patients will have a fairly high risk of recurrence, even if scans and exam look clear at that point. The recurrence risk could be anywhere from 20% to over 50%. And in those patients, historically, the, the standard option was interferon, which, as you alluded to, has been a very controversial therapy. I remember in, back in the days when that was all we had, those were some of my longest conversations with patients because it was very challenging to understand the nuances of the pros and cons. <laughs> but, you know, fast forward to where we are today, we have better drugs uh, that are clearly improving outcomes. Uh, so there's a survival advantage with the drug ipilimumab in the adjuvant setting. Uh, we don't use it too often because of the side effect profile. Uh, we tend to offer patients anti-PD-1 monotherapy. There are two approved agents, that's nivolumab and pembrolizumab in this setting. Uh, we know that those do improve the outcomes. We don't have overall survival data. We have relapse-free survival. So uh, we have seen, uh, at least in one study with a control arm that was a placebo, where the uh, improvement in relapse-free survival was 43%. So you almost reduce the recurrence rate by a half. So let's say you come to me and you have stage three disease, and I quote your recurrence risk of 30%. If we do a year of this therapy, we might be able to bring that down by half to 15%. And the majority of patients that we present this to are very interested and end up going on therapy. The other parts of that is we do have access to BRAF targeted therapy as an adjuvant drug. We know that the combination of dibrafenib, trametinib, and stage three resected disease 
uh, reduces the recurrence risk by about half as well. So that's another option for patients. And there's nuances between the way the drugs are administered and potential side effects. So some patients may choose to go on one versus the other. But it's interesting, you mentioned about the BRAF mutation. So it begs the question, I guess, and again, this is from a non-melanoma person. So the mutation, it's not necessarily happens in advanced disease. So you could see the mutation in early stage disease and it does not necessarily represent, it's not associated with metastasis only. You can see it in early stage. Correct. So the BRAF mutation, it's, it's very interesting. And we've learned quite a lot in a very short period of time, I think, about the genetics here is it tends to be more of a founder mutation. So it's present right at the beginning. Part of the evolution of the melanocyte becoming a melanoma or cancer cell in the lab, if you took a normal melanocyte and just introduced BRAF mutation to it, it doesn't make it a cancer cell actually, but it helps it along the way. There are a few other events that need to happen, but we usually see the BRAF mutation present at the very early stages of the melanoma development. So if you're thinking about how do you test for BRAF mutation, you could in, in theory test the primary spot, a regional lymph node metastasis, or even a distant metastasis and you would expect to get the same result outside of a few exceptions where occasionally there can be loss or divergence where there's not uh, always the BRAF mutation present. So, I mean, right now for patients who present with early stage disease referred to you for consideration of adjuvant therapy, do you sequence also the primary tumors uh, like university, or, uh, like all primary tumors in early stage, or you have a specific phenotype that makes you, I'm going to sequence that, not sequence the other? So we do sequence all patients' tumors uh, with melanoma if they have stage three melanoma or higher. So the patients may be cured by surgery, right? So they come in and uh, they have a wide local excision and a central lymph node biopsy in many cases and the disease has been cleared, at least clinically cleared. And we then uh, will offer them sequencing of the tumor for BRAF mutation. And that's for a couple reasons. You know, the first reason, as we alluded to, there is adjuvant therapy if there's a BRAF mutation present. Uh, another reason is um, the BRAF mutation might be important if they relapse. Let's say they don't go on BRAF-targeted therapy, and two years down the road, they relapse. Now you have that uh, in your back pocket, but the knowledge that that tumor is BRAF mutant, and when you meet with them, you know that that is an option for them, which is very helpful because if you see a patient with recurrent disease, stage four, and they need drug therapy, uh, they may present to you, but they don't have the BRAF mutation. It might take you a week or two weeks to get the results. Uh, we do ours in-house, uh, at least the initial BRAF run, and that takes us generally about a week, maybe shy of that, 72 hours in some cases. So there's a, a little bit of a limbo state for the patients where they don't know if that's even an option for them when they come in with stage four disease. So we like the, the information up front. We do think that BRAF mutation can make the tumor more aggressive, but it's not clearly uh, associated with higher rates of recurrence if you look across the literature. Some have shown that there is a higher risk of recurrence or, or a more aggressive phenotype, and others have shown that it may not be present. So it's, it's hard to know if that's a good way to look to see how aggressive the cancer is in a, a patient with resected disease. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I mean, I actually have a much clearer picture just listening to you into how you are approaching melanoma. Um, maybe my last just couple of questions are, I mean, as a, as a melanoma researcher, what are you, well, A, what are you really doing more in the lab or from a translational perspective that's um, 
that is interesting you and maybe what what are you really looking forward to at least knowing over the next couple of years i mean there are so many unresolved questions in every disease but if yeah. you have to pick the one and two things that you really would love to know the answer to in the next couple of years what would those be <laughs> okay well that was quite a a multifold question that you just landed there. <laughs> That's a good way to end the podcast with. <laughs> May we start with sort of the interest that we have uh, or that I've had. And in terms of one of the projects I've been working on is looking how to enhance immune responses. So we know that, for example, nivolumab plus ipilimumab, the response rate is about 60%, but that leaves 40% of patients who don't respond. And then of the 60% who are responders, about a third of those will progress eventually. So, so there's about half the patients out there that nevoipi is not the final treatment that they would receive. Some of the work that I've been involved in looking at receptor tyrosine kinase signaling, um, paracrine signaling in the tumor microenvironment such as CMET uh, and VEGF, VEGFR seems to impact the immune response. And there's data showing that some of these targeted therapies as well as uh, anti-VEGF monoclonal antibodies can enhance anti-PD-1 responses, particularly in, in tumor types like renal cell carcinoma and hepatocellular carcinoma. And I've been interested in this in melanoma, and I currently have an investigator-initiated protocol off the ground looking at cabozotinib in combination with standard nivolumab plus ipilimumab. And the idea is that this will hopefully enhance T-cell responses, increase T-cell infiltration into the tumor, and what we're hoping is that the, the durability of response, not just the response rate, will be improved. And uh, the study's underway, and we're going to look at the tumor samples and blood samples as, as patients are enrolled to look at the molecular markers and the immune phenotype changes that occur with the triple therapy regimen. So I'm very excited about that, and hopefully that does prove to be a very successful effort. One of the things, though, that I, I think that we really need to do is to refine our current efforts on what we have available as tools. So one of the things that I mentioned earlier in the podcast is that we don't know how long you treat a patient with anti-PD-1 therapy. If they're responding and tolerating the drug therapy, do you give it to them for a year? Do you give it to them two years? Or do you just let them go on indefinite? Uh, only a few of the trials actually had end times to the anti-PD-1 therapy duration. And the, the protocol that I'm working on is, act, is hopefully going to set one year as the timeline in patients that are clear of active disease by PET and by biopsy. Uh, what it's also going to show is that likely there's some patients that have stable response at a year time point, but they're not clear of disease. And those patients might ultimately progress. So at being able to identify those patients that will eventually progress after a year in anti-PD-1 anti therapy, I think is an unmet need right now. Uh, because we need to be able to proactively intervene. We don't want them to progress in the brain two years down the road or some other event that could be catastrophic. We want to intervene while things are under control. So the project is looking to identify how to identify those patients and then hopefully lead to the next uh, therapeutic intervention. And, and the other part to that is, and you mentioned it before, is how do we know which therapy a patient should receive? Should they start with anti-PD-1 monotherapy? Should all patients get combination? Or should they go on some other um, therapy regimen? For example, do they need triple therapy or do they need a whole other approach? Uh, we now have a number of immunotherapy strategies in the pipeline that likely will see FDA approval, whether it's adoptive T-cell transfer, uh, TLR9 agonists, uh, and there are potentially a few others that may get approved in melanoma. 
and we don't have biomarkers that clearly guide us on how to uh, offer the patients therapy. We thought it might be T cell based or immune signature based or PDL1 status based, but none of these have been uh, sophisticated enough to really rule in, rule out responses. So we, we've been struggling with this that right now we don't have good biomarkers to help guide the decision with patients with melanoma. Fascinating. And I'll, I'll put a shameless plug here for the Precision Oncology Alliance because I think maybe the opportunity to look at these biomarkers and really find ways of fine-tuning the phenotype or the biomarker that allows you to pick the right therapy. Hopefully, this will be an opportunity for all of the Alliance members to work on. Any final thoughts you want to leave uh, listeners with that maybe you wanted to share that I forgot to ask you about or I did not uh, cover? No, I think we covered everything. And I, I guess just want to reiterate that working in the field of melanoma is an exciting, positive field now. We have a lot of survivors long-term and uh, I think there's more to come. So this is a very exciting area. And the the biomarker strategy is, is uh, the new horizon. I think this is where we're going to make some major strides in the next few years. Being able to pick the right treatment for the right patient is, is going to be very key. I just love the fact that not all melanomas are created equal. I mean, back in the day, at least when I was in training, we had some criteria who to use IL-2 with, high-dose IL-2, and maybe some criteria for adjuvant interferon. But but right now, it's becoming just more precise. Now you're saying, okay, this is the one I should use that therapy for. And, and really, it underscores the importance of NGS and sequencing and getting to know the characteristics of the tumor to make you decide and to help clinicians and patients. So um, I'm very grateful for all of the progress that's going on. I'm also very grateful for what you're doing and keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Pleasure ch chatting about melanoma and immunotherapy, and uh, hopefully this was helpful. <laughs> we'll have you back next year. I expect a lot more progress, Jeff. Thank you. I'll give you an update. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule and tuning in to the Caris Molecular Minute podcast. And thank you to our guest, Dr. Jeff Gibney, for simplifying a very complicated topic. I hope you benefited from listening, and I hope you learned a few things that you did not know before listening to the podcast. Any comments or any suggestions, please send me an email to cnabhan at karisls.com. You just listened to the Karis Molecular Minute podcast. Until next time, stay safe and take care of yourself.